Welcome to Ruling Sports, a podcast giving you a playbook for life. I'm your host, Alicia Jessup. Join me as I interview athletes, leaders, and innovators to uncover their game plans for success and give you insights to rule your life. Let the play clock begin. Albert Einstein once said, the important thing is not to stop questioning. Curiosity has its own reason for existing. Today's guest is someone who has achieved success in athletics, family life, and business, thanks in part to his unsatiable curiosity. Taylor Griffin enjoyed an eight-year professional basketball career competing in the NBA, G League, as well as leagues in Belgium and Italy. He was drafted by the Phoenix Suns in 2009. Notably, that same year, his younger brother, Blake Griffin, was drafted first overall by the Los Angeles Clippers. In this interview, we talk about Taylor's upbringing and what it was like playing high school basketball for his father, Tommy. We discuss managing family dynamics and how he and Blake were able to not only avoid sibling rivalry, but come together after Taylor's career ended, this time as colleagues. Taylor takes us through his professional basketball career to provide important insights to those who might find themselves competing internationally. Growing up and attending college in Oklahoma, his international basketball experiences were definitely a long way from home. What he found, though, was love for new cultures, which he shares with us, along with some really fun travel tips. Taylor's professional basketball career came to a close in 2016. At the time, thanks in part to his roster spot on then one of the most exciting teams in the NBA and its place in Los Angeles, Brother Blake was being inundated with investment opportunities. Knowing that he could trust his brother, Blake turned to Taylor for help. Today, along with being the chief operating officer for Blake Griffin Enterprises, Taylor is the head of athlete relations for Patrickoff Co., an advisory service firm for professional athletes. Here, Taylor will talk to us about transitioning from a career in sports to how he was able to quickly develop financial and investing acumen. He provides great practical advice for how athletes and others can get started in investing, which you won't want to miss. One thing that was clear about Taylor is his passion for learning and acquiring knowledge. I know that this episode will not only entertain you, but motivate you to embrace curiosity in your own life. So now, please join me for my interview with Taylor Griffin. Taylor, thank you for joining the Ruling Sports Podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to, excited to be on. What goal, quote, or mindset has guided your life? That's a great, great first uh, kickoff question. I think kind of thinking back to just early in my lifetime, early days of school, like, you know, elementary, middle school, I don't think a lot of things stand out, you know, what I, what I learned in school. But one thing that I, I remember being impactful then when I, when I learned this phrase or term and then kind of sticking with me throughout, you know, the rest of my life is when I first learned of uh, Renaissance man, like what, what a Renaissance man was in, in history. And 
I don't know, for whatever reason, it stuck with me. And, you know, I, a couple of things that I pull from that is just kind of living a life of, of balance, um, embracing curiosity and, you know, really like never, never ceasing from, from learning and educate, ed- educating yourself. So, you know, the, the Renaissance man, you know, back in the day was this person that kind of embraced all of the arts, uh, reading, writing, athletics, uh, song, dance, everything. Right. And so I think just at an early age, I think that was, that was impactful to me. And so now, you know, I think throughout my career, it was always balance, right? So balance in your athletic career training, trying to never be kind of typecast as being one dimensional, making sure um, you can kind of do everything, whether that's on the court, you know, off the court um, in my friend relationships now and my relationship with my wife, my relationship, you know, as a father to my kids, uh, really trying to embrace that. And I, and I think on the learning side of it, it, it's been interesting to kind of notice, like over the years, I've noticed, I think a common progression that we all kind of fall into is you start out the first, you know, 25 to 30 years of your life asking questions, right? like trying to learn, trying to gain, gain knowledge. And at some point, the ratio of you asking questions to people asking you questions, like it starts to shift. I'm sure you've probably seen that just in your career, like, you know, people coming up underneath you, like asking you for advice and everything. So, and I, and I've seen it go one of two ways for people. Sometimes when that shift happens and people start asking you questions, it satisfies your quest to, to, continue to educate yourself and learn more. And so I, I think for me consciously, whenever that happens, as that starts to happen, as, as I get older and people come to me for questions or advice, whether it's about basketball or investing or whatever, is that I'm always seeking that next answer and you know, continuing to keep that ratio of, I wanna be asking more questions than people are asking me. Um, but, I, I, but I think all that kind of ties into that, that idea of, the renaissance man and um being balanced and embracing embracing curiosity that's so cool and it's such a great theme for the conversation that we're going to have today because we're going to touch upon your basketball career but then your current role and other avenues that you've traveled down so a, a renaissance man as you explained is someone who is well read enjoys the arts enjoys music what do you like reading about honestly I, i've never been one on fiction, you know, uh, narratives or, or fictional stories. Like if, if I have a chance to sit down with a book and I'm honestly, like a lot of it is uh, audiobooks at this point, it's, it's trying to learn something, um, whether to, to be a better leader, um, to be a better, uh, maybe like it's learning to be better in, in the space of like emotional intelligence, uh, relationally, um, be a better communicator. So, you know, I think it's it's always geared towards that. Like, if I have a, a few minutes to to read a page, and and sometimes it's just you know interesting articles. Uh, it's all it's all on the table. But as long as I can kind of glean something from it um, that I can tie into my own life, like um, I'm going to try to try to read it and spend some time on it. That's awesome. So I'm going to put you on the spot here. If a friend is asking for a book recommendation or you're at a dinner, what is one book that you are the most frequently recommending others read? A couple, couple ways to take it. For, for kind of an entrepreneurial, like in, inspiring story, 
I thought uh, Shoe Dog, the Phil Knight uh, memoir, Shoe Dog was just like, I mean, I appreciate Nike and Jordan and sneakers. And, uh, you know, it's been a big part of my life, just like, like a lot of athletes. But I thought that story was just fascinating um, by itself and just, you know, seeing wh- where Nike started and obviously what we know it is today and, and Phil's kind of journey the ups and downs and all that. I think another one on, on kind of on the investment side that I think everyone should probably read. It's a little little dry, but uh, The Intelligent Investor. It's one of those books like you can kind of go back and continue to, to read um, again and again. I just started Atomic Habits. So I'm excited to to dive into that one a little bit more. Three great books. I've I've read them all. I echo you on Shoe Dog. And so in that realm, what I love about Shoe Dog is those of us living today, we see the aftermath of Phil Knight's vision and idea, but most of us didn't get to go through the blood, sweat, and tears with him. And he lays it all out. And one thing that really struck me about that book is just the role that loyalty played in building this organization. And he talks, for instance, about when his son died in a really tragic, unexpected scuba diving death, the first person to call him was Tiger Woods. And so when Tiger was going through his situation um, in the early 2010s, a lot of companies canceled his endorsement, but Nike stuck by him. And so in the book, Phil talks about, hey, I will never let someone speak poorly about Tiger Woods because when my family was going through its worst time, Tiger Woods was the first person as busy as he is, as big as he was and continues to be, he was the first person to pick up the phone and call me and make sure I'm okay. So it's a great book about building a business, but also the importance of relationships to business. A hundred percent. And, you know, I think anyone can take that, that little snippet that you just shared. And it's, it's so easy to fall into this is a very transactional, you know, whether it's sports business it's easy to fall into this, like, you do this for me, I'll give you this. And that's just, that's life and I get it. But little reminders like that, um, I, I, you know, for, for athletes, I mean, just thinking back on my career, um, the people that I've been able to spend a little extra time with, or, or they've been, they've spent a little extra time with me, like that bond, a lot of times will go, you know, will last through a lot of uh, ups and downs. It's so true. And I I think it's something that maybe not everyone understands. And I've clearly never achieved what Phil Knight has, but when you get to certain places, not yet, (laughs) Um, when you get to certain places in life, it can become somewhat isolated and you encounter so many people where to your point, the relationship is transactional. It's what can I do for you? What can you do for me? And it never goes deeper than that surface. And so that's what really struck me about the part in the book about Tiger Woods is that that was a transactional relationship. Tiger Woods amassed a significant amount of wealth through Nike. But even though it was a transactional relationship, Tiger Woods took it deeper and built Mm -hmm. that actual friendship and caring and empathetic part of it. And so I I think it's a great book. I echo you and everything that you said. So let's jump now to something that you've kind of been mentioning, and that is your basketball career. How did you get interested in the sport of basketball? 
you know, honestly, my, my dad, uh, who coached my brother and I, um, in high school, he has, and is still a coach. Uh, I think he's coming up on probably coaching high school basketball for about 50 years, uh, which is crazy. So, you know, as long as we can remember, he was coaching football and basketball. So that was just, that was what we were around. Started playing at six years old. And, and my dad was, I mean, he still like encourages every kid like to play a lot of sports, right? He was, he was a basketball coach, but it was never like, no, basketball is our sport. This is what we're going to do from day one. And we're going to go all the way through. He was encouraging of uh, Blake and I to play uh, basketball, obviously baseball, soccer, flag football. He even, he loved the fact that we got into golf and we got a little bit older. He knew nothing about it you know, doesn't play, but he loved the idea of just exposing us to a bunch of different kind of athletic uh, experiences. So was there pressure on you to be good at basketball since your father obviously was and continues to be good at it? No, I, I never, never felt that, that pressure. And I think some of that was just like, again, the mindset that he had early on is like, I, I just want you guys to experience all of this. And you know, if we had gravitated, if we had both gravitated to, to golf or baseball, like, I don't think he would have put any kind of, I know he wouldn't have put any kind of pressure on us to, you know, come spend a little bit more time on the basketball court um, or whatever, but it, it kind of just naturally happened after kind of getting through elementary into middle school, you know, I started spending less and less time on those other sports and just really kind of following, falling in love with basketball. and. That's where all my time went. You know, by the time I was in high school, I played one year of football in high school and basketball was it. Like I was doing it year round, nonstop with the goal of a college scholarship. That was kind of my, it was like a high school state championship and college scholarship. That was my like one, two. One, two punch. Yeah. Did you, did you grow up your entire life in Oklahoma? Uh, yes. Yeah. Okay. So I grew up in Oklahoma City. Um, it's kind of all we knew and then went, you know, Blake and I both played college at the university of Oklahoma. So just went 40 minutes down the road. So really I, I never lived outside of Oklahoma until I became a pro. And then I started living really all over the world at that point. Everywhere. So let's go back to high school. You and your brother, Blake, Blake Griffin, end up playing for your father, Tommy. He ends up being your high school basketball coach. What's that like? How do you balance the relationship of coach versus player and son versus father? What's the dynamic there? It, it was it was interesting. Like he, again, my dad did an incredible job kind of separating the two. And, and honestly, like it was something I didn't really have to focus on a whole lot. Now he was definitely hard on us and he was harder on us. And he admits that we both know that we knew it at the time, everybody around us knew that he was harder <laughs> on us than, than everybody else. But, you know, he, he did such a good job of separating coach versus dad. Like, you know, if we had a, a rough practice or just things weren't going well on the court, by the time we got home, a lot of times Blake and I would drive home um, a little earlier. He would get home right after by the time we got home, it was like it never happened, right? Mm -hmm. And so I don't think either of us were emotionally intelligent enough at the time to do that dance, but he thankfully kind of took it out of our hands to where we didn't really have to think about it. 
Hmm. Would you coach your own children? So you're a father, you're married. Would you coach your own children someday? Uh, yeah, I think so. I think That's so. Awesome. I have uh, two girls and a, and a baby boy. Um, so who knows what sports they'll, they'll gravitate to, but I'm, uh, I'm open to it. Hey everyone. I hope you're enjoying the show. Please don't forget to rate, subscribe and review ruling sports on iTunes or your favorite podcast streaming service. It goes a long way to growing the show. Thank you for your support. So in 2009, you were drafted by the Phoenix Suns of the NBA. You went on to an eight-year professional basketball career. That's how you compete not only in the NBA, but also the NBA G League and also leagues in Belgium and Italy. So growing up in Oklahoma, was there anything that prepared you for a global career? Not a whole lot. I mean, I think just, you know, growing up in my family, my, my parents, I think, are two of the hardest people, hardest working people I know. My dad, as you know, was a high school teacher and coach. Uh, my mom was also a high school, public school teacher. She took a break to homeschool us when we were like super young. And then we ended up going to a private school later on. But during that whole time, they also ran a trophy and awards business out of the back of our house. And so essentially, I mean, both of them were working two jobs, you know, since the moment I was born. Um, really all the way through, I think, college for us. So, I mean, just growing up in that and seeing my dad get home, you know, after a basketball game at, at midnight and maybe it's the busy season for trophy and awards and he goes straight to the back room and he's working there until 2 a.m. or 3 a.m., sleeping for a few hours, getting up at six and going back to school to get ready for classes. You know, so it's like growing up in that environment you have no, the example is there. You just have to follow it. So I, I think they did an incredible job of just helping us understand, like, if you want something, you're going to have to work for it and you're going to have to work harder than probably most of the people around you with the journey that, you know, my career took me from Phoenix to overseas. Like there were some bumps in the road, injuries, everything. It was just kind of always going back to that mindset of, all right, if, if I'm going to get through this or if I want to get from point A to point B, I'm just going to have to work work my way through it and, and try to work harder than, than everybody else. It seems like you really come from a family where there's no excuses. It's let's set a goal and let's figure out how to attain that goal instead of shirking back and saying, well, I guess I just can't do it or poor me. It, it seems like you have a very strong-minded family who achieves a lot across the board, mother, father, brother, and yourself. That's that's really awesome. These days, more and more athletes are competing internationally. The NBA really is an international league. At this point, we do see men who kind of move across multiple leagues throughout their NBA journey. What advice would you give to another player who perhaps finds himself competing internationally? just embrace the culture. And I played with a bunch of teammates that either I played with them, you know, the, in the G league and they spent time overseas or, you know, I was overseas with them, but the guys that, you know, really had the most fulfilling, uh, full long careers over there. They, they embrace whatever city they're in. They embrace the culture. I mean, that's the beautiful thing about being able to do that. Like, no, you're not making NBA money, but you're at the end of the day, you're still making money to play a game. In a game that, uh, you know, 
most of the, the guys over there love playing. So just understand, you know, keeping that in perspective um, through the, the ups and downs and, you know, injuries, whatever. I've seen guys that kind of go over there and they just kind of stay holed up in their room and just play video games the whole time and don't really get out and see. And typically, normally that ends up in, in a kind of miserable experience um, versus the guys that get out, they do, they sightsee, they they eat the local or they try the local food at least <laughs> and kind of really like fall in love with the culture of wherever they are. And, you know, the thing about being over there is you never know what the next year brings, you know. Um, you could be in Spain one one year uh, or one season and Italy the next and Germany. Uh, but I, I think that's the, the biggest thing is like keeping that perspective of you're getting to play a game, make money playing a game that you love and embrace the, the travel and like the the culture that, that comes with that. And so to be able to travel the world <laughs> not on your own dime, but somebody else's dime while also right. getting paid and playing a sport you love. That's a pretty good offer, especially for a young person. So you've seen the world through basketball. What is your favorite favorite place that you've visited and what would you do there? What's your travel recommendation? Uh, yeah, Taylor's, Taylor's travel guide. <laughs> um, I think, so I, I played in Italy uh, my very last year playing playing professional basketball, which was incredible. Played in a little town uh, in Sicily and, you know, felt like a vacation the whole time. Food was incredible. You know, just all the typical great Italian things, like, were true. And love love that country. Uh, I got to spend some time in, in Rome. Mm -hmm. uh, I think Florence was my all-time favorite. So anybody that can venture over there, I would suggest trying to get to Florence. Um, if it's an athlete and you end up playing in Florence, like incredible, but like, if not, if you have a break or just somebody on vacation, try to spend some time in Florence. Food's incredible. The art, the architecture, uh, everything. It's amazing. Beyond that, uh, I got to play a couple games in Israel and one in Jerusalem, which yeah. got, you know, a couple off days in Jerusalem and got to just kind of tour the city. One thing that I remember specifically is... I think I did a tour, I think Via Della Rosa. I think it's the path that Jesus took, you know, carrying the cross and and all that. And, you know, I, I don't care what kind of, you know, what your religious background is, like that it's it's history, right? And there's just some of the the age. I mean, same thing with like Rome and the Colosseum, like just the you know, I think the Colosseum is a must for anybody that uh, goes to Rome, which Again, just like the history and just the richness uh, of the culture is like you have to you have to embrace it. So I would say that Jerusalem and uh, Rome or, or Florence. That's amazing. So in a couple of weeks after we're recording this, I'm actually going to Milan, Florence and Rome. So I will be emailing Damn. you for some you restaurant go. recommendations. Yeah, I love Taylor's travel tips. That's the new <laughs> podcast coming soon. So that, that's awesome. What an incredible experience. In the last decade, we've seen some impressive brother duos reach the NBA. We've talked about your relationship with your father as a coach, but how do you avoid letting competition hurt a family relationship when you and a sibling are working and competing in the same space? That's a great question. And it's it's honestly, it's it's never really been, yes, like growing up, we fought all the time. I mean, there was a period where 
I don't know, there's probably a three or four year period where it was like literally every day. It didn't matter what we were doing. It could have been a video game, a board game. It could have been getting groceries out of the car. Like it was going to turn into a competition and it was going to turn into somebody being pissed off at the end. My mom survived, like we survived that. My mom survived that. We got through it. And by the time, you know, we got to, to high school, we were a little bit more civil, a couple spats here and there. And then, you know, maybe one or two, like on the court in college. And then really since then, I think we've enjoyed each other's successes. Right. And I, you know, I, I get that question a lot. The first time was our university was doing like a, a program with a sports psychologist and working with some of the athletes. And so I, I sat down with her one time and she was like, okay, like, how is it, uh, how is it being Blake Griffin's brother? I was like, it's great. I mean, he's, he's killing it. He's, you know, he was on track to be like the number one draft pick at that point. And she was like, no, really? Like, you can tell me, like, really? And I was like, I was kind of stuck for a second. I was just like, honestly, I mean, the way I see it is if, if I'm going to have a teammate that's having like this kind of success, I would rather that person be in my family, sharing my genetics and DNA. Like, I would rather that be the person that is like literally the closest person to me at that point mm-hmm. than than somebody else so it's it never was really a struggle and it was just like i've truly i know it's, this is a boring answer but no it's uh, awesome <laughs> I, i've truly like enjoyed watching all of his successes at every level and you know i know the same is true for him and and watching me do do my thing it, it seems like you have incredible parents uh yeah i would say so yeah, I would say so. Yeah, they're 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 pretty amazing. I mean, I, I've touched on it a little bit, but you know, they've again. I think their generosity and and work ethic are the two things that really have stuck with me. One of the two things that, that really stuck with me and and influenced how you know my my worldview. So I want to stick with you and your brother for the time being, you alongside Blake are a founder of what is called Team Griffin. What is Team Griffin and how are you guys shaping the youth basketball experience? Team Griffin, it's a couple of things. So Team Griffin Foundation is is our family foundation that we founded in uh, 2016. You know, kind of under that umbrella is Team Griffin Basketball. And what Team Griffin Basketball is, is it's actually, we took over the team that Blake and I played for um, coming out of Oklahoma. So uh, right now, all the shoe teams, you know, call it your Adidas, Under Armour, and Nike all have these elite level circuits that high school kids can play on, travel around the country, play in front of coaches in the hopes of being recruited, right, to go to get a college scholarship. So we played for a Nike team growing up. Uh, Blake was able to take over that team kind of rebrand it. He's a Jordan brand athlete. So brought Jordan brand into the mix and kind of revitalized the program. And so essentially what it is, is a elite, elite level grassroots basketball organization based in Oklahoma city to where kids in Oklahoma and surrounding States, you know, we sponsor along with Jordan brand to get them exposure with the, with the end goal of helping guide them, uh, mentor them and get them to um, college. That's awesome. And if you take a look at the website, it seems like so much more than just a competitive youth travel basketball team. It, it seems like the mentorship key 
is a key focus of what you're doing with Team Griffin. And today, college and even some high school basketball players, depending on what state they're in, they have an opportunity that you and Blake did not have that opportunity being the ability to profit off of their name, image, and likeness. So there's extra factors that are coming into play, especially in a sport as visible and popular as boys or men's basketball. Are you guys giving them any advice on how to balance brand building versus their basketball career? It's it's tough, right? Like it's yes, the opportunity is great um, for for kids coming out of high school right now, and you know, with all the opportunity with NIL, and you know, to be able to make a few extra dollars while you're getting an education before you turn pro, like it's a lot. It's a lot going on, and everybody's trying to figure it out. Um, kids are trying to figure it out. Schools are trying to figure out. Coaches, agent, you know, it's 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 a lot going on. You know, I, I think for Blake and I, we try to be there to be a resource. Because now it's 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 turning into you're not just selecting a university for maybe the the degree that you can get there, the the playing style, the coach. Now it's coupled with that is like maybe there's two hundred thousand dollars attached to that or four hundred thousand dollars attached to that. And how do you <laughs> it was already a tough juggle to start with picking a college. Now it's you know, the difference in a few years, you know, yearly salaries, you know, thrown on top. So it it's a lot. And we try to be there for our guys as, as much as possible and for our families. And, you know, one thing I'm super proud of is the the coaches that we have in our organization, uh, because that's, that's where it starts with. So when, when we took over uh, the program, it was less about going and finding the kids to be in the program. It was more about finding the coaches, right? Finding the right coaches with the right mentality, um, with the right motivation of wanting to help that next generation of, of basketball player grow and, you know, become young men at the time. Now we have men's and women's uh, basketball, but it's, it's that mentorship is, to me, the key to it, the key to it all. And the icing on the cake is, Yes, we want every kid, and so far we've done that, every kid that comes to the program to have the ability to go to uh, college for free. And that's, you know, that's the that's the end goal. That's amazing. So as you were coming up outside of your parents, did you have any mentors guiding you in the process? That was it was a different world. <laughs> the youth basketball world is so different from when we came out, but but yes, I mean, coaches, different coaches that I that I played for, you know, whether that's head coaches or assistant coaches at the high school, AAU coaches. Yes, there was there was a ton of people, family, family friends, you know, that that helped guide us or give us advice or helped us think about a lot. Like that at, at that point, like that's the biggest decision any kid is really has probably made at that point is like, where am I gonna go to college? Right. Now it's just it's that on steroids as far as what kids are going through and it's juggling social media, the, the pressure to like build your brand um, mm -hmm. and what that means and um, not getting too distracted by that versus just focusing on basketball because that's the reason that you have all these other opportunities is because you want are talented, you've worked hard and you, you've focused on this one thing. Mm -hmm. So like not losing sight of, where these other opportunities come from. 
Do you want exclusive insights from your favorite athletes, sport industry leaders, and innovators delivered straight to your inbox? Subscribe today to the Ruling Sports Newsletter. The Ruling Sports Newsletter cuts the mystery out of success by bringing you leadership tools, entrepreneurial strategies, business insights, and wellness tips straight from some of the world's most positively impactful people. So go to rulingsports.com today and subscribe for free. Focus is so critical. I'm friends with Troy Polamalu, the former NFL player and Hall of Famer, and he sure. mentors a lot. Beautiful of, head of hair. Beautiful head of hair. Okay, so fun fact, I'm half Samoan, but my hair doesn't look like that, sadly. I'm, <laughs> uh, but mine, Mine has left me, so, you know. Yeah, there's, you know, there's that too. That's the other yeah. end of the spectrum. <laughs> you know, maybe we can get you in on the head and shoulders commercial deal. But he mentors a lot of the Samoan football players, and he brings me into some of those conversations sometimes. And the conversation we have with a lot of these men is the reason why people are watching you right now, at least, is because of your football prowess. And so that always needs to be number one. We cannot lose this football yep. talent at the cost of building a brand. And for these young people, I'm all for them being able to profit off of their name, image, and likeness. I think it was a travesty. I think it was an injustice that they weren't able to until 2021. We're dealing with a generation that is the most anxious in our living history of all living generations. Gen Z is the most anxious. There's science and data that demonstrates that. And now we're putting another thing onto their lap or onto their pile and we aren't really giving them always the best resources to manage all of those buckets of life. And so that's what is awesome about what you and your brother are doing is you're providing mentorship, you're providing examples, you're using real life case studies from your and his lives and experiences that perhaps they're going to be able to better navigate it than some of their peers in this space. So it's, it's a fascinating time. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's the hope. And listen, like obviously Blake and I didn't go through, we're not juggling all the things that athletes today um, are juggling, but you know, with, with our program, we've been around for six years now. And so now we have guys that I think this year will be the first year that we have a guy that's kind of left college and um, hopefully will be a pro. So now like creating this, this family of like, okay, like he can come back and he can kind of impart some wisdom on these guys. That's going to be different than me and Blake's experience, just because that was 15, 20 years ago, kind of just creating that community and that family of, you know, everybody kind of helping each other and older guys helping the younger guys and, and so on and so forth. That's awesome. In 2018, I consulted with the National Basketball Player Association, which for listeners who are unfamiliar, that's the union that NBA players belong to. And what I did for them is I helped them build a program for players transitioning out of the league. So players whose basketball careers were coming to an end to help mm -hmm. them navigate life. As you were moving through your professional basketball career, did you plan for life after basketball? And if so, what did that look like and how did you do it? Not as much as I should have. You never know when the opportunity is going to, going to end, whether that's football, baseball, basketball, whatever it is, like you never know. And so it's, I encourage any athlete to start thinking about it from day one. You don't have to like spend a ton of time on it, but just, you know, start thinking about like, what would I do if, if I was not 
playing basketball anymore, if I was not playing baseball anymore, whatever. So I, I studied health and exercise science in college. I, it was always fascinating to me. Early on, I was on kind of like the pre-med track and quickly realized that that was a little too ambitious trying to play, you know, college ball and then do the pre-med thing. So that was, that was short-lived, but I stuck with the health and exercise science major. And, and it was great. I mean, it helped me understand everything. And that's always been interesting to me. And so for, for a while, the idea was I would kind of transition to a career of athletic training or um, physical training, performance training. And then there was always the possibility of coaching or, or something like that. But I wasn't really thinking along the lines of business, finance, investments. Really, that came from you know, when I finished in 2016, Blake was still in LA and he just had a ton going on. Uh, he had a great team around him with agent, business manager, wealth advisors. He was getting all this investment opportunity just from being visible and being who he was in a big market on, a, you know, one of the most recognizable teams at the time. And there wasn't really any like organization behind it. So one, he wanted to, you know, start looking at deals and investing and so around that time, I was trying to figure out what I was going to do. He said he was kind of waiting for me to finish my career before he put this on me, which I, I appreciated. He was like, once once he knew that I was turning toward being done playing, he was like, I would love it if you came on board with me and kind of helped steer the ship in a mm. way. And it took me kind of like thinking through it for a little bit. I was a little hesitant to be kind of the the sibling on the payroll kind of kind of thing. but honestly, like once I made the decision, I like, I never looked back and it's been a blast. It's, it's allowed me to, I'm thankful for that role because it allowed me to kind of have my hands on a bunch of different things, kind of like learn the, the nonprofit world, the 501c3, you know, foundation kind of set that up, work closely with his agent on the sports marketing and his endorsement deals and working with NBA GMs. Part that I really, I think gravitated to the most was the investment piece. And so Again, not having any kind of background in business and finance, I just had to like ask a lot of questions, try to read a lot, try to take every meeting, try to, you know, surround myself with smart people. Um, and that's something that, you know, I, I still try to do to this day. And and I'm and I'm still learning. There's there's a lot to learn, especially when you don't have that kind of institutional learning uh behind you or, or education behind you. So yeah, I gravitated towards that. I wish, you know, going back now, like I tell kids all the time, if they're going into college, they don't have any idea of what they want to study. It's like, just sign up for a business, just business degree. And just, you know, you may figure it out along the way. You may, may want to pivot, but if you never figure it out and, you know, that happens to some of us, at least you have a business degree or have some baseline financial knowledge that's going to bode well for you, whatever, whatever you do down the road. You know, I, I love hearing the story about how this opportunity came about for you. Trust is so critical for professional athletes and frankly, everyone, but not everyone in this world has as many sharks and vultures swimming and flying after them to take advantage of them. So it sounds like your brother had deep, deep, deep trust for you. And he knew that there were so many forces coming at him that he needed someone he could count on and knew had his best interests at heart to suss through them. What was the deal flow like? Like how much do premier professional athletes get hit up with investment opportunities? It's it's quite a bit. I mean, 
I would say kind of at the the high around that time, it was probably a couple opportunities per week. That's that's probably a, a lot for a firm, you know, to like look, be looking at these. But like you know, for some of these top athletes to be getting pitched, and and this is a wide spectrum of deals, right? It could be a friend's uh, restaurant concept all the way to a very sophisticated like real estate development deal or private equity deal. So it's it's really just about learning how to filter all that and knowing like what are you know, kind of telltale signs about, you know, what's what's a good deal, what's what's a deal I should just not even uh, go down the road with. And so a lot of that time was just both of us really kind of figuring out okay, like who who can help us with this? Like what kind of team can we construct around us to help figure out and and understanding like that's it's a positive, right? All that deal flow is a positive and it's just like how do you take that positive and execute it? in a strategic, uh, thoughtful way. It's absolutely a positive, but at, at the same hand, there's very few Americans or frankly people globally whose salaries are published online and in the newspaper. <laughs> and so it just kind of sets a flashlight or a spotlight to anyone who's seeking money of, hey, this person has at least X, Y, or Z dollars. So you talked about learning what you need to do to evaluate a deal. Can you share some of that insight with the listeners? What, what are some things sure. to look for when you're presented with an investment opportunity? The first thing is, you know, as, as athletes, probably most professional athletes don't have a, there's some to do, but don't have a business or finance background. Um, or maybe they were on that track, but they had the opportunity to leave college early to go pro. So, you know, there, there's a, there's a lot to learn. One of the, the key, you know, early things to, to kind of, be aware of is you have to spend some time getting acclimated to the environment that you're getting into. So if it is you're wanting to dive into investing some of your own money, putting that to work, you got to spend some time with it and spend some time asking questions and learning. There's a great Warren Buffett quote. It's basically like risk comes from not knowing what you're doing. Not that everybody knows what they're doing all the time, but like the less you know, the more risk there is if you're diving into an investment or, or a business venture. I think one question to ask for, for any athlete that's being presented a deal is, who is, who is bringing you this deal? Are they, are they also putting their, their own money in? I mean, I think that's a big filter right there. If, if they're not putting their own money into this deal, if they're telling you to put your money in, then you should probably not consider it, right? What else? I think just kind of the quality of the management team, um, other investors, you know, are they... Investors that have had a lot of success is the management team had a lot of success in whatever area of the, of the business that they're they're focused on. And finally, you have to understand the business. I don't think you have to like know the business through and through, but you have to be able to explain the business in four or five sentences. Like if somebody's asking you, like, what is this business you're you're wanting to invest in? You have to be able to tell them accurately what the business is and why you want to invest. If you if you can't do that, then you know, I think it's probably not a good idea to, to put your money to work. Really great advice. So one, make sure whoever's seeking money from you is putting their own money into the investment. Two, the qualifications and experience of the management team, which I'll get back to in a second. And then three, you as the investor, you need to understand what this business is doing because essentially what you're looking for there is is this something that I think can actually make money? Is this something I would consume? Is it something my friends would consume? With management teams, 
I've talked to billionaires in my reporting career, and they always come back to that point in choosing what entrepreneurs or what ventures they invest in. And they say oftentimes it's less about betting on an idea, but more so believing that this person or group of people at the helm can execute the idea. And so that's something I think sport people can relate to. You know, you're, you're putting your money down on a team and what you think that team could accomplish. So today you're the head of athlete relations for Patrick Kofco. Tell us a little bit about what that is. Uh, yeah. So Patrick Kofco is a investment advisory platform for professional athletes specifically. We kind of have two sides of the business. One is we offer a kind of a range of advisory services for the athletes. And so that kind of goes back to what I was saying is, you know, when I first started working with my brother and trying to assess all these deals and figure out like what spaces and what sectors we were interested in and trying to talk to people in those sectors. So one thing that we do at Patrick Offco is any client that signs up with us, we will take on that that incoming deal advisory that they need or a deal assessment. Any client can send us a deal that they receive, whether it's from a teammate or somebody they met on the street. If it's something that they're interested in, we will break it down, do a full assessment of the deal, take it back to them with um, pros and cons, follow-up questions to ask. Um, and then at that point, we'll get as involved as the, the client wants. So I think that's probably the biggest, I think, value add for for clients. And then beyond that, you know, we have a whole range of, of athletes on the platform where some are, you know, rookies are just starting out and just want to start kind of have somebody that they can call and ask a question like everybody's saying the market is down like what is what does that mean right now you know um, but i think kind of having some of those questions early on again curiosity right it's it's embracing curiosity you may not be ready to invest tons of money or you're you may be waiting for that next contract or you know things are you're still trying to solidify yourself as a professional athlete but starting to see some of the deal flow spending time with people that do this for a living, I think is beneficial. So that's one side of the business. And then we also offer um, some later stage private equity investment opportunities to our athletes on the platform as well. If I don't have access to Patrickoff and its platform, what type of people should I be putting around me before I begin investing? I think, again, going back to asking questions and learning. So I think a great way to do that is to try to form relationships with fund managers. So whether that's early stage startup funds or later stage private equity, there's probably a fund in every professional playing city. You could probably, as, as athletes, get into most of those doors and start asking questions. Being able to tap into that, and maybe it's, and maybe it's even investing in one of those funds, um, putting a little bit of money to work and seeing kind of asking questions, seeing how they assess deals, um, why they chose that deal, not that deal. So I would say that's that's a good kind of first step as you continue to educate yourself and read and ask questions. And That's so good. And I'm a lawyer, so I'm probably saying this as a lawyer. I think when you're doing that, you need a lawyer to be doing due diligence on the companies that you're looking into putting money behind because- sure. Due diligence can really prevent a lot of fires. Well, Taylor, this has been such a fun conversation. You truly are a Renaissance man. You've proven that in the last- you made my day. Yeah. <laughs> Tell your fam. Um, 
you, you've really proven that in this conversation, if you could invest in one thing, what would it be? What type of company or innovation do you want this world to experience? Personally, I'm, I'm really interested in cell-based meat. I think it's just fascinating. I mean, uh, we've kind of seen the, seen the wave of plant-based meat and those alternatives and the Beyond Meats and Impossible Meats, and there's several others. And then same with the milk, you know, we've seen like the plant-based milks. And one thing that I've been tracking for a few years now, and I, I just think it's absolutely fascinating, is the cell-based meat. So, you know, taking the stem cell of a chicken, cow, salmon, you know, fish, whatever, growing it in a lab, and trying to create the same texture and consistency that you get from a fillet or a chicken breast or you know salmon fillet and you know it, it's been fun to see just in like really 3 years probably the progress that some of these companies have made but i think that's that's kind of the industry that excites me the most right now that's so cool and especially with the issues with the climate and the space it requires to raise cattle and other livestock. I think that's a really fascinating industry. We can come back another time and we can do a whole hour on the science behind plant-based and cell-based meat. This has been so great. Thank you so much for your time. How can people follow you? I'm on Instagram, Twitter. Any questions, um, you can reach me at tg at pco.com. Also on LinkedIn as well. So follow me. Ask me right. questions. Um, I'll probably follow up with a question from from that person as well. So, <laughs> yeah, you're probably going to get hit up with a lot of cell based meat investment opportunities <laughs> now. So, hey, but you know that's that's the beauty. Like, there's uh, embrace the the opportunity and embrace the deal flow, and you never know what comes out of it. Hey everyone, thanks for listening. I hope you gained wisdom that will help you rule your life. Let's stay connected on social media. We're at Ruling Sports on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Sign up for our weekly newsletter at rulingsports.com and email me your thoughts about the show at alicia at rulingsports.com. If you liked what you heard, subscribe, rate, and review the show and join us next time.